This Slate Spoiler Special is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code SPOILERS. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate Spoiler Special podcast on RoboCop, the new José Pagilio remake of the Paul Verhoeven classic from 1987. So joining me here in the Slate New York studio are Chris Wade, audio producer extraordinaire. Hello, Dana. And Forrest Wickman, who is a contributor to Slate, an editor editor of the Browbeat Culture blog. Am I getting this yeah, right? Yeah, a writer Just primarily a, for Browbeat. All-around Slate writer and good dude. And so we all saw <laughs> Thanks, RoboCop. Dana. You're welcome. We all saw RoboCop last night together. We try not to talk about it too much afterwards. Um, and I know that you guys had strong feelings as well about the original. So the way I want to structure our conversation is first react to the new movie. Then maybe we'll go back and talk a little bit about the Paul Verhoeven movie and about the act of remaking cult classics and, you know, the, the obstacles in the way of, of people who try to do that. All right, so so just quickly, what did you guys think of the new RoboCop? I thought it was not terrible. It has a lot of good stuff in it. I really enjoyed Michael Keaton and Jay Baruchel, uh, but I felt like ultimately it couldn't really decide how seriously to take itself. It wasn't quite light enough, as the original often is, to really be fun, and it wasn't quite smart enough to justify all of its sort of darkness. So I wanted to have more fun or to find it more interesting, and instead I couldn't quite go with either of those. Yeah? What about you, Chris? Meh. It, it, didn't really, it doesn't really have anything to bring to the table. It's like an indication at an action movie rather than anything either celebratory of its original or tra- treading into uncharted territories. It, it's just aggressively mediocre in yeah. like pretty much every quadrant that a movie can be. Yeah, I would say it, it feels like a February action release, which is really sort of sad given that I think it does have some pretty good material to work with. I think you can really tell that the director has some is a very talented guy and has some really great ideas, and it's really well it's really well shot and presented, and all the technical elements of it are, are very fun to look at and very well executed. Um, but the story elements and the what it's trying to do with the story of RoboCop, well, that's the problem. It's not trying to do anything other than just like lay Use the a name. story. Yeah, right. lay a yeah. story cop. Or well, story cop. A RoboCop. I wish there was a story cop for this movie. But we should mention that the, the guy who directed it, this Brazilian named Jose Pagilia, this is his first movie in the U.S. His first, very first movie, the documentary Bus 174, which is, I think, a great documentary, is about, it's essentially about police corruption in Brazil, as are both of the two fiction movies he made afterwards, Elite Squad 1 and 2, are also these kind of exposés of, of corruption. Bus, bus 174 is the story of a, a hijacking of a bus um, that's all based on, you know, essentially police video and security video that was taken at the time, but it also ends up being an expose of police practices and how horribly this hijacking was handled and just, you know, what a disaster the whole thing became. So for him to be taking on RoboCop, which in the Paul Verhoeven original is really a social satire as much as it is an action thriller, seemed like a really promising combination. But I think some of the social satire that he attempts to make, and this may also be, you know, the studio throwing obstacles in his way and trying to do anything interesting, but the social satire doesn't go far enough and it almost seems to be satirizing like the wrong culture, you know? This is kind of an expose of police corruption too, but ultimately learning that, you know, the head of the Detroit Police Department is corrupt just doesn't seem quite 
big enough, you know, for for a movie of this scope. I mean, the original is just all about, you know, the future of subjectivity and the age of technology, and it's about, you know, I don't know, consumer culture. It's about, it's, got, it's got all these fake ads that are fantastic. You know, it's just got all these little sharp moments of satire that this movie seems to be vaguely gesturing at with like oven mitts on its hands. Yeah, I mean, I think if if this one has any target, it's drones. But unfortunately, that's a that's a target that pretty much every action blockbuster has taken on for the last five years, from Star Trek Into Darkness to Iron Man, and and so I mean, some of those elements were already in the original, but remaking it now, I was struck thinking back on it and what it had to say about that, and realizing that it was all the same things that Iron Man had to say. I don't know how long ago that was, like six, seven years ago. Yeah, the uh, the scene, the opening scene in which we watch a, uh, a a drone squadron pacify a neighborhood of Tehran felt very much like that scene in Iron Man where mm-hmm. Iron Man descends from the sky in the terrorist village and pacifies and like takes out all the people who were his captors. Um, I think the oven mitts analogy is great. I mean, it feels like it's swatting at so many things, but there's so many like different tangents of this movie that just feel totally underwritten and underexplored like pretty much every aspect of it the aspect where it's about robocop dealing with his family and like the emotional disconnect of suddenly having this hu- this man who is a husband and father come back as mostly machine except for his mind but is it really his mind but that's not really fully explored or the idea of a corruption in a police department and when can we give over our policing t- entirely to machines that may be perfect but is there a fallibility of a machine but that's not really explored or whether or not he's going to overcome his central prerogatives as as a robot to find this personal mission of vendetta and and break down his programming to go and and deal with this person but that's not fully explored or is it about the corporate uh like intransience and corruption and corporate ability to influence our entire lives and that's not fully explored. Right. Well, there's also a little bit of a framework of media satire. So we have Samuel L. Jackson as this, he seems to be maybe a right-wing political commentator who has this very high-tech show. And we open, I don't know if it's the very first image. No, the very first scene is that Tehran scene you mentioned. But but the first thing that we see back in Detroit, where the movie is set, as the original was, is um, is... Samuel Jackson doing his thing on the, the stage of this show. And once again, it's very, very oven mitt satire because he's very funny. But I just don't feel like his show, the, the fact that he's this commentator, is embedded in a media world that we can understand or, or believe. And it made me think of the original and how much work Verhoeven did to create this very strange, witty, dark, dystopic world that had a lot of detail. Yeah. And um, the thing about Verhoeven's media satire, that crazy Bixby Snyder Benny Hill-esque, like, very raunchy body sitcom is that the way it's shown is not as a framing device or a narrative device, but rather just a pervasive element where everybody's watching it. You know, a guy whose gas station is getting robbed by hoodlums isn't paying attention because he's got his feet up eating donuts watching the Bixby Snyder show. Now that I think about it, that joke is better done in the, the Lego movie, right? Yeah. With, uh, where, everybody... with where Are My Pants, yeah. the show that everybody watches like a drone. Well, speaking of the Lego movie, considering how just aggressively, assaultively loud and sensorily overload. And it might have just been our screening, but this was like one of the loudest movies I can remember seeing. Yeah. Uh, after watching the Lego movie on Sunday night and uh, watching uh, RoboCop on Monday night, this was like trying to replicate the experience of pure black tar entertainment heroin with a, a soggy old cigarette found in the bottom <laughs> of it. A shoe or something. I love that the Lego movie was just compared to heroin. I'm sure the family filmmakers who made it would be really happy for that comparison. I mean, comparison. it's pretty up and down delightful. 
It's pretty sweet. Oh, wait, this is turning into a praise session for the, <laughs> the Lego, Lego movie. movie. They've yeah. truly oh, taken over our minds. Well, what I wanted to say about the, the framing device and the Samuel Jackson thing is that the first 20 minutes of this movie are actually, of RoboCop, are actually really promising. I and totally it agree. It does start with, much with actually a great joke, which is the MGM lion yeah. coming on the screen. And it, at just as it's beginning to roar, you With Samuel hear, Jackson's, like, vocal exercises. Right. And it turns into... Samuel Jackson vocal warm up for his show. That was pretty the peak. Funny. The peak of this whole movie. It was all downhill from <laughs> yeah, there. Don't put your best joke actually, in the first though, second. Yeah, though I think I'm actually realizing that I like this movie slightly more than you guys. Maybe because it just didn't feel like I agree 100 percent about the oven mitts, but it didn't feel totally paint by numbers. Like it did try to capture a little bit of the spirit of Verhoeven. It did have a little bit of visual flair that you don't get. And I kept thinking about something like Total Recall. Uh, that remake that came out last year, which there was nothing really wrong with it, but it wasn't interesting in any way. And this movie at least was a a sort of interesting failure, I thought. Like, it wasn't totally successful, but there were good aspects to it. Again, it was really well shot, and I think like the, the, action the filming was, and yeah. pacing was, was very good. And, <laughs> you know, a lot of silly elements like that first... Uh, the stuff that you wouldn't see where, you know, where you would expect an action scene to be set to like a pounding like techno or these days like more dubstep song. The first big RoboCop action sequence is set to this phenomenally goofy but kind of awesome uh, prog rock song by this band called Focus, which I originally thought was a uh, when I was listening, I was thinking it might have been Jethro Tull because there was aggressive flute in it. But it's uh, a song called Hocus Pocus by the band Focus off their 1972 album, Ho- Focus 2, which I recommend everybody YouTubing because it's very silly and great and has a lot of yodeling and hard rock guitar. Whoa, that is some deep cut identification right there. Wait, so let's talk a little bit about the about RoboCop himself. We haven't even talked about this character, the the murdered cop remade as, you know, Techno Man, played by Joel Kinnaman, um, the, I think, Swedish-American actor who, who had the second cop role in The Killing. I think people primarily know him from the American version of The Killing. I also saw him in a Swedish movie last year, completely speaking Swedish, which really threw me as well. So he's like a dual, <laughs> dual culture, dual language actor. So what did you think of him as RoboCop and also just how that character was presented here as opposed to in the original? I thought he was super boring. He was the one aspect of the killing that I that was sort of held my attention for the first uh, hour or so I watched of that show. I'll go further but, than that. I loved him in the killing, and I watched yeah. I watched the no, entire I, show in part because of him. Right? Yeah. I mean, he was. I, I really did like him in that. I'm I'm mostly just saying I hated the rest of the show. I mean, but he was great. And in this, he just came off as I wondered about the language thing because he came off as very sort of mumbly and mushmouth to me. A, eh? and then he was so sort of emotionless that it made it much less dramatic when they actually like drained the emotion from his system and he was slightly different. <laughs> Narratively drained. Yeah, I mean, that, Robocop... that was a huge mistake in this movie. We'll get to the narrative draining in a minute. <laughs> yeah, Robocop in general is kind of a thankless role but made fantastic in the original by Peter Weller's great linking of an emotionally deadpan performance with a really high intensity physical performance because Instead of it being like CGI or where, you know, he's wearing like a 60 pound rubber suit that he's really well mimicking the motions of a robot in the entire movie. And in fact, he was apparently cast largely because he could move in that suit. He was a relatively slight guy. He wasn't a huge muscle bound, Mm -hmm. you know, sliced alone, Schwarzenegger sized person. And he could actually manipulate this heavy metal suit. And of course, you're right that all that kind of real relationship to the metal body is all gone. The other thing about Joel Kinnaman is that he's kind of lost in a sea, a really great, well-casted sea of, oh, hey, that guy, casting, that, as Forrest said, you know, has great, four underwritten parts, great performances by Michael Keaton, Michael K. Williams, uh, 
every everybody shows up in this movie. Jay Barrowkell is in it for no reason, playing not that hefty of a part. Jennifer uh, Ely shows yeah. up in a kind of role she doesn't usually play as this sort of cold corporate bitch. Yeah, Jackie Earl Haley as the oh Jackie Earl Haley, great in that too, yeah, vaguely was... psychotic arms master for the op for Omnicorp. Yeah, it has a lot going for it on on the cast front for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, for people who don't know the original RoboCop, and also this one is quite different in many ways, let's go through a a quick summary of the story. Chris, you want to start? Yeah. So after we get this framing device where Samuel L. Jackson has a news show that basically tells us that robots are everywhere in foreign policy but uh, are still illegal domestically, we cut to Alex Murphy, Detective Alex Murphy, with his partner, um, played by our main characters, Joel... I'm going to forget his name every time. Joel Kinnaman. Joel Kinnaman and Michael K. Williams investigating a gun dealer in Detroit uh, named Antoine Vallon. And uh, basically, after almost making the arrest on Antoine Vallon, uh, everything goes south, and Vallon sends his men to eliminate Alex Murphy because he's getting too close. They plant a bomb on his car after a... Uh, a nice scene with his loving family where it shows that his wife is sweet and his kid really likes hockey, which becomes very the only element of that kid's character later. Uh, I don't Alex think Mur- we get a single one for Abby Cornish. No. Yeah, Besides, like, she gets to look beautiful. And, that, yeah. and that's, yeah. No hockey that's, fandom, even. Yeah. Right. Uh, um, she's good, too. So after we establish the nothingness of his family, uh, he goes to open his car and it blows up giving him fourth-degree burns over 80% of his body. But handily not his face, which still looks perfectly awesome. Yeah, exactly. And and basically his wife is given the option by Omnicorp, who is looking for a a family-friendly face to put on their drones to get the public behind domestic drone policy uh, to save Alex Murphy by putting his mind in the body of a robot. And then we cut, we flash forward to three months later, in one of the one interesting narrative elements of this movie, we flash forward to a flashback of Alex Murphy dreaming of his marriage or his wedding reception to his wife. Was that supposed to be? I thought that was just supposed to be a fantasy. I thought it was maybe a dream, yeah. yeah. But, it is, but it is a really cool flash yeah. forward. You're right. Because you think, well, how could he be completely recovered three months later? And then it turns out this is all happening in his brain as he's hooked up to various yeah. machines. Yeah. Uh, which he comes out of and realizes that he is in a lab. And, uh, Dana, I think this is your and my favorite part of the movie. Do you want to describe how... Oh, hey, right. hey how we... mine too. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah, I think Besides this... the MGM logo. Number two after the MGM logo. <laughs> this is definitely a moment when I thought this, this movie is going to go to some interesting places, and I, I'm still sad that it didn't go to those places. So you at first see him in his full RoboCop suit, right, with a visor helmet and a full you know metal superhero body and so forth. But then... A couple scenes later, sort of after he started to realize and started to grasp the reality, or rather I think he's still sort of refusing to grasp the reality of his new status as this half-robot, half-human, Gary Oldman, who plays the doctor scientist who's, you know, shepherding him through this whole transformation, reveals his true self with outside of the suit to him. And it's this crazy visual that I want you guys to help me describe. So we see Joel Kinnaman's head, right, in sort of a visor that leaves his brain exposed. So he has like an exposed, throbbing, visible brain at the top of his head. And then other than that, he basically consists of a trachea, a pair of lungs, and one hand, right? And they're just sort of like suspended there in jars. And it's this very ear image of Gary Oldman. He holds up a mirror, right? Doesn't he like show mm-hmm. him a full-length mirror? And uh, and Joel Kinnaman's head, hand, and lungs <laughs> sort of having a conversation. Yeah, and it's very unsettling and has some great like classic sci-fi body horror of just seeing your exposed innards existing in this scientific vat sort of that as the shell of RoboCop is slowly removed. It's It's kind of like 
the cool effect of Iron Man's body, iron body coming on him, except removing down to the actual, like, throbbing heart and organs of the guy. It's a very cool effect. And it's, yeah. it's, it's one of the few scenes where there's some sort of, like, existential um, horror brought in. As you say, mm-hmm. it's body horror, and it's also kind of soul horror, you know, where... where Robocop, Alex Murphy, is is forced to ask himself, what am I if I'm only this? And in fact, he asks Gary Oldman to kill him in that scene, right? And mm-hmm. then because of his family, he ends up deciding to go on and live. Yeah, I thought it was totally legitimately horrifying. And then also, I felt like it was the one moment in the movie where it went totally over, over the top in a way that the original does all the time. Chris, you were remembering earlier how there's a guy who's like sawed in half by machine gun fire in the original, and it looks sort of like what this scene does in this movie, but it's the only moment that you get like that. I completely agree. This is It's not a Verhovenian moment. It's almost more like Cronenbergian. Cronenberg, yeah. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but it's a moment that the movie does something daring and imaginative that, that it then backs away from very quickly. Yeah, oh. and there's another interesting part in that segment that I thought we'd get more from where, he, where Robocop is like freaking out in his new body and runs out of the lab. And as he runs out of this very clean, high-tech lab, he, he's running through this room that's just full of thousands and thousands of... of Asian technology workers in like the clean suits and the the masks and is kind of going like what's what's going on with here and busts out of that warehouse and jumps over a wall and realizes he's basically in a compound in the middle of like Shenzhen or yeah rice patties in the middle of nowhere and it's like kind of hilarious commentary just in that moment that they're outsourcing the RoboCop construction to China but it's it's not discussed at any other point. In the right. Movie. Once again, yeah. it's not embedded in a larger yeah. social. It's one satire. of those. It's one of those threads that's kind of handled with oven mitts that it, it, it's not fully shaped. So, um, the, so then I think the next kind of story beat that I wanted to get to that I think is really the moment that you called it the brain drain earlier. It's just it's just the moment that to me the story kind of lost all its momentum is when okay. So they decide that Alex Murphy essentially is not going to work as a RoboCop with his human brain inside because he has too much of a moral imagination and moral judgment. And they run him through this simulation where he, in, in, in the video simulation, would have to shoot somebody who's holding a small child, right? It's like a hostage situation. He has to make this decision whether or not he's going to shoot a guy when he could accidentally also shoot a kid. And, uh, and he hesitates too long. And if it had been a real-life scenario, right, he would have been shot himself. And so they decide that we have to take out his moral imagination and they do some kind of a brain... Or it's actually, it's actually they take out his emotion because later, I mean, so that's one problem they have. And then later they discover this problem that, like, as they're uploading all of the crime database into his head, he flashes on his own right. killing. And then somehow his emotions conflict with the circuitry. And that, I don't even remember exactly how that becomes a problem. Yeah, see, I actually think the first time they did it was actually kind of a, a great choice and should have been yeah. the, the main conflict and arc of the movie. So the first time they they remove part of his emotions, oh, he's not as efficient as a pure machine, we have to take out, they like, they remove a chip from his head and basically explain it as like, oh, when his he's not in battle mode, he maintains control of the robot. But when his visor goes down and he goes in battle control, basically the, the mechanical mind is deceiving him into thinking he's in control, but he's his conscious mind is on autopilot and basically the AI of the robot takes over, which I was like, okay, cool, great. Into it, eventually there'll be a conflict where he realizes that he's not in control of his combat mode and then the arc of the movie will be him struggling against Omnicorp's programming to, uh, to, uh, to overcome it and like do the right thing in an important situation. But then that is undercut 20 minutes later 
when he has this seizure when all the crime database is uploaded and then they like do a little bit more sci-fi hand hand waving and gary oldman i'm air quoting here drains his dopamine until he becomes a totally soulless uh like robot person and then there's no dramatic moment that fixes yeah, it. Yeah, maybe kind that's of like, the moment. You're right. I'm blending together the yeah. two different de-emotionizations of, of Alex Murphy, but it's the second one that really turns him into essentially a passive pawn of Omnicorp, and he's no longer a moral agent, so he's not an interesting character. And then it kind of devolves into uh, one long sequence to the end after that. That that dopamine drain moment is happens right before in a moment of panic where he has the seizure right before his big public presentation which is, you know, maybe like 40, 45 minutes into the movie. And after that public presentation, the entire rest of the movie is just this, like, elaborate sequence of him ruthlessly, efficiently solving crimes, which is perhaps the most fun, like, visceral fun part of this movie. And But then just, like, not really having an emotional beat or any specific emotional beat, but just, like, kind of slowly regaining yeah. his essential Alex Murphiness as he totally offhandedly dismisses or like goes and finds and kills uh Antoine Vallon who uh bombed him to begin with and then goes back and seeks revenge against uh Michael Keaton for being a bad business guy who you know is just trying just trying to to safen up the American streets you know he's not evil enough in this movie yeah, because the villains it, in the first movie, I mean, I'm sorry to keep shouting out the 87 RoboCop, but the villains were incredible. There were so many great villains in that movie, the Ronnie Cox character and the Kurtwood Smith character. And it was just like as soon as one villain got mowed in half by machine gun mm-hmm. fire, another interesting villain would pop up. Yeah. All right. Well, let me stop you right there for just a quick word from our sponsor. This episode of the Slate Spoiler Special is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code SPOILER. Squarespace is always improving their platform with new features, new designs, and better support. They have beautiful designs for you to start with and all the style options you need to create a unique website for you or your business. It's very easy to use, but if you need some help, they have an amazing support team that works 24-7. The service starts at just $8 a month and includes a free domain name if you sign up for one year. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website, so your content will look great on any platform, anytime. You can start a trial with no credit card and start building your website. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer SPOILER to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for the Spoiler Special Podcast. We thank Squarespace for their support. All right, so Forrest, you were talking about Michael Keaton. I think you had one more point to make about his performance. So I was disappointed with how that villain didn't go anywhere. But I actually, the more I think about it, the more I kind of like it. So I want to stand up for it a little bit. It's just sort of like this weird banality of corporate evil villain where he never – he. I mean, he goes cartoon villain in the sense that he finally shows that he's willing to just kill Murphy in order to save his company. Um, and he does that very coldly, but he never. You never find out that actually he's like, you know, in cahoots with Iran or something. You know that he's actually working with the terrorists or criminals or whatever. And I just loved the way that Keaton played it as like it felt like if they took Hank Scorpio from The Simpsons, who's this like uh, James Bond villain meets Steve Jobs kind of thing, and put that like I loved his business casual. I'm gonna wear jeans and, and a sweater. fleece all of the time. But it's not. A, but and, it's not that far into either direction where you know you'd either want 
it to push that that Hank Scorpio thing because the other, the really fun thing about Hank Scorpio is that he's a nice guy. He's a really yeah. nice guy to be around. And you either want Keaton to be like real, real buddy buddy with everybody and be like, no, this is going to be great. I'm going to save your life. We're going to make the streets safer, or you want him to have that moment where he's like chewing out Jay Barucal. That's like you think that this is just about profits. No, it's about changing the world. You know, like yeah, having yeah. a real big moment. But it, it, it's it's not. He's like at at 70% the entire movie and just kind of like wavers But there. it's not Keaton's fault. I mean, the, the role is just really not fleshed out. Is he a Steve Jobs? What is Omnicore? You know, yeah. what, what, does it, what role does it play in the imagination of, of the future? I do love the set of his office, this strange, utterly empty glass desk that he sits at, which at least in an early scene is in front of three giant Francis Bacon paintings, <laughs> which are kind of perfect because they sort of look like the lungs in a jar, right? Mm-hmm. They're these like gross, fleshy forms on the paintings. Well, I think uh, it's a good time to take a step back and, and talk about kind of my like meta issues with this this movie and like its existence in general. All right, let's get to that. This was the last thing we wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. I think we can all agree that this is not a particularly vibrant remake of the original RoboCop and that it's only marginally worth seeing if you are a sort of action completist. So I was just uh, doing some background research about the development of it and read some kind of interesting drama and, you know, it's gossip, but it, it's... Uh, pretty widely reported that along the production process, Jose... How do you pronounce that in the If you want to be Brazilian about it, you say Jose Padilla. Okay. Uh, Dana's got it. Uh, (laughs) I lived in Brazil for a while. It's my chance to bust out my Portuguese. Okay. So as uh, Dana says it, Jose Padilla. Something like that? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, he had called up his friend, who is the director of um, City of God, uh, whose name I don't remember off the top of my head, and basically said something like, this movie is hell. Fernando Morelis? Is that who Yeah, Morelis. Um, this making this movie is hell. For every ten ideas I bring, the studio nixes nine of them. I have so little creative control here. It's a very studio-run po- pro- project, which you could like assume would be the case with a big property like this. But then I also read uh, Drew McWeenie from Hitflix kind of um, trashing an earlier draft of the script on Twitter. And I like Drew McWeenie, and I think that his critiques are probably valid in their own way. But the version of the script that he was dra- trashing also seemed much more interesting than this where he was the stuff that he was talking about disliking seemed that would be like cool in, in the movie like like a scene where different versions of RoboCop were focus grouped in front of audiences of both prisoners and consumers to see what was simultaneously the most scary and the most friendly or more commentary on RoboCop being outsourced to China or RoboCop's first test drive being just dropped into an Al-Qaeda, uh, Al-Qaeda controlled city and seeing what he does in a a city where like consequences didn't really matter a lot of you know stuff that would actually be weird or commentary driven about the movie and i think that that's the thing about the original robocop that made it great it's not great because of its its adherence to action movie tropes it's it's great because of its weirdness because of the things that that are unlike other action movies and when you're remaking a movie like this it's it's kind of like what's the audience here fans of the original who probably like RoboCop because of its outlandishness, its weirdness, its its moments of absurdity. But then when you reboot it by a major, you know, a $100 million reboot by a major studio, de facto you're going to be shaving off all the rough edges of something and making a really slick product that is going to have, by design, none of the great things of the original. So it's kind of like as soon as you conceive of the idea of, and again, scare quotes, remaking RoboCop, the moment that idea is brought into creation, you can conceive of no world in which the studio pipeline it goes down doesn't create 
a bad, tepid remake of RoboCop. And then the question is like, why? Right. I mean, and we're in the age of the Verhoeven remake. So there was one of those Y movies last year, right? Total Recall. Which had the exact same thing. And then now we've got this and Starship Troopers is coming up. And I think that seems maybe like the most unremakeable Verhoeven masterpiece of all. Because Starship Troopers has a very specific satiric tone that I think at the time even went over lots of people's heads. I mean, it was very unclear to what extent it was a gung-ho patriotic action movie and to what extent it was, you know, a bitter satire of same. It's, it's also weird because RoboCop is very much a movie of its time and, you know, made put, sent into production and made in the mid-80s where America was still in the grip of high crime rates and kind of just a general fear of urban violence. And now this remake is coming out at the end of a 20-year decline of, of urban violence and, and violent crime. So it's lacking any kind of any satire or commentary that it might have had of a paranoid America worried about its streets being safe is kind of already neutered just because of its climate. And any that was left is then shaved off by a studio and production forces obviously worried about doing anything that might be considered strange or weird or or, or outside the broadest tent of mainstream action movie filmmaking. Well, and as you were saying, I mean, a lot of those problems still exist and are, are there to be made a movie about. And we were imagining the citizens of Detroit seeing this RoboCop, right, as opposed to the old one that had this very bleak vision of, you know, Detroit is this this failed city. I mean, Detroit, Detroit is arguably an even more failed city than it was in 1987, right? But in this movie, somehow there's $2.6 billion lying around to, to develop a technological cop hybrid. Yeah, and you don't even see any of the, like, failed failed Detroit city. I mean, it's kind of insulting to Detroit to like turn to like set new RoboCop in the old Detroit that was already this prophetic vision of urban decay in 1987 and then only show shiny, new, sleek police headquarters in a very beautiful suburban neighborhood white picket house where the Murphy family lives and shiny high rise buildings on the waterfront. I mean, to take out all the the visions of urban decay that RoboCop is like essentially about is insulting is like actually insulting to both the property and the city. I'm I, I feel like I'm somewhat I really like the original movie. I'm somewhat less uh, interested in being reverential to the original, or I don't think it has to be about the same thing. Like I think this one tries to make it a, more about drones than about police corruption or you know failures domestically or whatever, and and. Admittedly, that doesn't really work that well to make a movie set. And I mean, it doesn't manage this movie does not manage to make it work to to make a movie that's effectively about something that's abroad and set it domestically. But I mean, I think that if they had found a way to somehow make that fresh again after there had been so many other movies, then that could have worked and it would have been fine if it wasn't about the same thing as the original. And like and similarly, I think that this one uh it's maybe made somewhat for fans of the original, but realistically, it's made a lot more for 14-year-olds 14, 14 who I think will probably generally like this movie. I mean, the action is pretty flashy and pretty – and he seems – the director seems to be pretty great at filming action. These action sequences are really fast and kinetic and exciting at, while at the same time you totally know what's going on, which is something that so many – you know, action director is somebody like Chris Nolan, who is one of the few people who could have maybe persuaded a studio to let him make something more interesting. I, I agree. And I think yeah. Jose Padilla will probably make more interesting movies and is probably, you know, down in Rio de Janeiro right now, like face palming that he got involved in this. Yeah, in this. It feels like a, a blockbuster that, you know, probably he was too good to direct. Um, you know, Forrest, the thing is that I actually agree with you. The RoboCop is great because it's actually about things. 
And the remake is not great because it's about nothing. Like everything it, it indicates it might be about, it actually doesn't ever grasp hold of. And so what you're left with is only what the title tells you it is, a robot cop. Yeah. <laughs> and and the most fun parts of this movie are the moments of Alex Murphy ruthlessly robotically hunting down criminals and putting them taking them to justice in like hyper efficient robot mode. Those sequences are great and fun and kinetic. And other than that, it just seems to like wave its hands about trying to grasp at something to be about without ever landing on something to be. All right. Well, thank you guys for bringing your brains and lungs in jars <laughs> to come and talk about RoboCop. At least one of my hands. <laughs> <laughs> let's all wave goodbye with our one human hand. All right. So let's spoil another movie soon. Whenever Starship Troopers comes out, I'll be back to wax disappointed about how great the original Verhoeven movie was. Please do. Okay. Our producer is you, Chris Wade. Our executive producer is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens.